Well, please do open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We're going to continue uh, studying this letter that Paul wrote uh, from Corinth to the church in Rome, desiring to be with them, desiring to teach them the truths of the gospel, many of which for the very first time, this young community, some from a Jewish background, religious background, others from a much more secular or sort of like a plethora of many different gods of the first century world. And so he is giving them clarity about who they are in Christ, first and foremost. Um, And we'll be in Romans chapter 6, verse 12 and 14. And and I want to confess to you, we we may not get through all that I believe that the Lord desires for us to hear from these three verses, I know. Um, But there, I think, is a wealth of understanding here that Paul is trying to communicate. So somewhere around 11, I'll just shut it down and we'll pick up wherever we've left off next week. Um, But let's keep the context in mind a little bit, that we're in Romans chapter 6. And if you remember... Paul is answering an objection. He's done this a couple of times as sort of like a literary device, if you will, of presuming an understanding that his readership or his first century Christian brothers and sisters were going to have questions or objections to things that he was saying, knowing their stories, knowing what they are like. In fact, one of my responsibilities as a teacher of God's word is to anticipate where your minds might go when you hear a particular idea. And so we get this from the scriptures that Paul is anticipating an objection. And, and we know this because if you move your eyes from verse 12 up to verse 1, he starts with a question. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So Paul is responding to a possible objection or question, essentially, that his readers would have, that if, if grace abounds, is what he talked about in Romans chapter 5, if that where, where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. So they may be thinking like, well, then shouldn't we just keep sinning? God will be gracious to us, and morality really doesn't matter because God is really good. And so in response, Paul is giving us a picture of what has happened to us through our spiritual baptism, our our resurrection, that salvation ought to change the way that we think about ourselves. Salvation ought to change the way that we think about ourselves. When we think about ourselves, as we looked at last week, we're supposed to think about Christ. We're supposed to think about who he is first and foremost. This doesn't mean that the particular and unique ways that God has made you in his image don't matter. They are just not primary. What Paul is teaching us is that ultimately, when we think about ourselves, we think about Christ specifically about his death and resurrection. Paul has taught us that there is this old self that has died with Christ, and now a new self which has been raised with Christ in verse 5. See, in light of this reality, look at verse 11. This is what Paul says. Consider yourself, calculate yourself, or reckon yourself. So after you've looked at everything and weighed it on a scale and understood what the scriptures are teaching and who you are in Christ, consider yourself two things, as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is how we understand ourselves. If you are in Christ, then you are dead to sin. If you are in Christ, then you are alive to God. And remember how central this idea of union with Christ or in Christ is in Paul's theology or in his writing. So what this means is that when you become a Christian, you have left behind a world that is bound up, trapped, incarcerated to sin, and you have been raised to a life that is bound to Christ. Now notice, either way, you're bound. One of the the secular misnomers of our day is that there are those who are free and can do as they please, and those who are bound. And in many respects, the secular world critiques religion as as a crutch or as something that binds you up and, and withholds from you. 
and keeps you from being your true and beautiful selves. But as N.T. Wright puts it, what is involved in becoming a Christian and then living the life that God has this renewed humanity is that we have a change of masters. We have a change of masters. Now, a master is not just someone you serve or that you are bound to, but biblically in particular and, and generally, a master is someone who tells you who you are. Master is someone who tells you who you are. They give you language and a lens to see yourself and the world around you. And so the question that we had to consider previously and will need to confront again today is not only who is your master, but what lens are you looking through to understand yourself and the world? What language do you use to speak about yourself? What words do you receive from others as telling you the truth about who you are? Is it Christ or is it something else? And I think if we're just going to be real... This is not easy. In fact, if I look back on my week, I trusted a lot of other voices before I looked to Christ. What other people said about me. What other people said about the people with whom I am associated, right? Perhaps I'm not the only one, that I need to look to Christ and, and have a fresh understanding of what the lens is, not just to see God, but ultimate reality, which includes my own personhood. See, for some of Paul's readers, what this meant was that they were to no longer see themselves through the lens of their obedience or their disobedience. I wonder if this is you, through religious rules and expectations. And, and what, what I think Paul is getting at in that is that sometimes we evaluate our, our value and our worth based upon how well we are following the rules in a, any given time, any given week. So have I done what has been pleasing to God? And if I didn't, then, or if someone says that I didn't, then I'm ultimately seeing my identity through the lens of my behavior. And that kind of identity always leads to shame. See, understanding ourselves through Christ never leads to shame. Why? Because he washes you clean of a guilty conscience. Am I preaching to you yet? So if you feel shame, you are seeing yourself through a lens through which Jesus has liberated you from. It doesn't mean that you can just easily flip the switch and no longer do it, but the truth about who you are is not found through your track record of obedience or disobedience. It is found in your understanding of who Christ says that you are. Are you with me, church? And so some of Paul's readers are going to struggle with that. Struggle with understanding that they should not see themselves through the law, which will always lead to shame. For others, this newness of life meant no longer seeing life as being lived from one pleasure to the next. No longer seeing themselves through the lens of personal freedom and autonomy. Because an identity that is purely through autonomy or freedom or doing as I please always leads to guilt. This is what Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 2. That it, that it may feel good for a moment, right? This is, this is the lie that we often tell ourselves in the church, that sin is, never feels good and it's never fun. No, it's really fun at the beginning. In fact, one writer says that an idol at the beginning gives you everything and takes nothing. But eventually, it takes everything and gives you nothing. See, at the beginning, it's really fun. It's enjoyable. It's freeing. This is what I've been waiting for. And, and we can, if we're not careful, we live from pleasure to pleasure. And what Paul is saying is that's not who you are. That doesn't lead to ultimate freedom. That leads to guilt. So let's make sure we keep this in mind. Paul is talking to two very different groups of people who are still represented in our fellowship, different upbringings, different psyches, different cultures, different personal perspectives. He's writing them with different views on spirituality, two predominantly different cultural and ethnic communities, Jews and Gentiles. But when they meet Jesus, Jesus rescued them from a life of sin, which told them lies and broke them down with shame and guilt and freed them to a life that was now bound in truth, that heals, that cleanses, that empowers them in righteousness. 
See, what Paul is describing through this language of life and death and mastery and lordship is that when we are saved by God, we are welcomed into a new realm, into a new existence. We are not simply given new rules to follow. This is really important. When you became a Christian, you didn't just get a bunch of rules that now you have to live your life by. You were welcomed to a completely new life, a completely different existence. We were not simply given new routines. Now you pray before meals. Now you show up to church on time. It's 10 o'clock, by the way, just, just for clarity, right? So these aren't just new things that we do. We don't just recite new words, right? We're not just given freedom to do as we please. We should not go on sinning. See, Jesus is better than just a new set of rules. Jesus is better than just a new set of pleasures. The gospel is better than that. Salvation is better than that. See, in Christ, we are sworn into a citizenship of a completely new world. We are adopted into a completely new family. We are introduced to a brand new way of being. We are taken away from what, what Paul described as an Adam humanity in chapter 5, and now we're made part of a Messiah humanity. See, so it's so much bigger than we often think. It's so much more beautiful and robust than just now you have new rules to follow or now you have new pleasures to enjoy. Here's how Peter records it in chapter 2 in his first letter. But you are chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do, do you see Paul, or, or rather Peter in this case, is getting at the elemental nature of your personhood that you are now part of a people you weren't before. Now you are a person that you weren't before. You are brought into this realm, this kingdom, this context that you weren't before. So what's all of this have to do with Romans chapter 6, verse 12 and through 14? Well, Paul's message today is pretty straightforward. He gives us two imperatives and one indicative. In other words, he gives us two commands and one promise. Two commands and one promise. And here's what he's going to say. Don't give yourself to sin but give yourself to God. Those are his two commands. Don't give yourself to sin. Give yourself to God. And the promise that undergirds all of this is because you are under grace, not under the law. Because you are under grace and not under the law. See, what we'll discover, what Paul will teach us, is that the only possible way for us to obey these two commands, these two imperatives, and believe this promise is when we understand that we're part of a new people that we're part of a completely new humanity, a humanity that is not of this world and yet in this world. And so Romans chapter 6, verse 12 through 14 reads this way. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God an instrument as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. These are the very words of God, and we say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Let's ask his help. Heavenly Father, there's no way that we could just read these words and then go out and live differently and be different. 
We, we desperately need your Holy Spirit to illuminate the scriptures, to shine brightly through this text so that we'd see the power of God, we would witness the beauty of Jesus and the wisdom of the Spirit so that we might become the church that you're calling us to be, this people, this new humanity that you're calling us to be here in this city, in this particular region of the city, and in this particular part of the world, and by God's grace, all over the world. And so help us now to submit to your word and to joyfully obey it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So what Paul's doing from what he's already said in chapter 6, now here in verses 11, or rather 12 through 14, is he's moving from a thought to action, right? So many of us can really appreciate this, because you're like, give me something to do. I want to do something. I want to respond. I just want to think rightly. I want to live rightly. And so that would say yes and amen, right? Christians are not just those who have really great thoughts about God, but by God's grace, through his power, we actually obey what he says, right? That, that we have to be careful about really awesome small groups that like get together and just like, yeah, this is the truth of God. We love the truth of God. We sit under the truth of God, and then we go and do as we please, and we don't actually obey the word of God, right? You actually were not meant to be in a space of a worship gathering in a small group setting your entire existence. You were actually meant to actually go be the kingdom of Jesus out in the world. And so this is what Paul is writing about. In particular, he is going to explain in verse 11 that he said, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. What's that look like? Should be the question on our minds. What's it really look like? It's a nice thought, right? Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, right? We have this vision of Paul. It's like, wow, that's a powerful statement. I have no idea what that means. And he's like, I know, because I got verse 12, 13, and 14 to tell you what this means. He gives two commands and one promise to explain what it looks like to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. The first imperative or command has two layers or two elements to it, if you will, and both expound on the idea of what it means to be dead to sin, what it means to be dead to sin. Look again, verses 12 and first part of 13. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So the first command, don't give yourself to sin. Church in the square, do not give yourself to sin. What's that mean? First, it means what Paul says here in verse 12, don't let sin reign in your body. Don't let sin reign in your body. Now, Paul says we can tell that sin reigns in our bodies if we're constantly, continue, what does he, what does he keep saying? That if we are obeying sinful passions, so how do I know if sin is reigning in my mortal body, if he's reigning in my person, if sin is reigning in me, that we continue to obey sinful passions? Now, when Paul uses the language of the body, he's talking about the whole person. He's not just talking about our physical bodies, though he is also talking about our physical bodies. He's talking about your mind, your body, and your soul. That means the types of passions that he is referring to are our desires and our longings more than but not less than our physical impulses within us. So, so hear this, my sisters and brothers. He's talking about your vocational ambitions. He's talking about your romantic hopes and your romantic dreams. He's talking about sexual lust and your angry wishes. He's talking about your desire to always be right and always have things your own way. Am I getting up in your kitchen yet? Because this text has gotten up into mine, right? He's talking about all of that stuff. He's talking about the recurring urge to have more and to be seen as more and to have what someone else possesses. You know, all that ugly stuff that you actually never talk about with your small group when it comes to prayer time. You're just like, I'm feeling a little under the weather and work is crazy. All the while, there are these urges that are showing up in you. Paul's saying, don't, don't be mastered by those things. 
you picking up on what Paul's throwing down. You see, the Christian, please hear this, the Christian is not someone who responds to their passions by blindly satisfying them. That if I feel it, then I do it. That is not the way that a Christian thinks. We do not blindly feed our impulses. The Christian, rather, is one who interrogates their passions and considers whether or not they are biblical, they are wise, they are timely, and even if they are necessary to satisfy. Is it biblical? Is it wise? Is it time? Is it necessary? In fact, I think just by simply pausing, what the, what the follower of Jesus does is we just pause and ask questions about our desires, we prove that they don't master us. Does that make sense? That, that if, I, if I even just have enough self-control by God's Spirit, not of my own power, to just take a step back from an impulse that I have and just go, what's that? What's that feeling? What's that desire? Is that, is that, is that biblical? Is that wise? Is, that, is, is this the right time for that? Is that even necessary? See, we demonstrate that sin does not reign in us when we simply take a pause and reflect and ask these questions. By not letting sin reign, but not letting sin reign is more than, though, just asking questions. We also must be sensitive to submit to the Holy Spirit's answers to those questions, right? So we, we take time, we pause when we have an impulse, we ask questions about it. And then we say, what's God's word have to say about this? What's God's spirit have to say about this? And so I want to take some time, and this is what this morning as I was reviewing my uh, notes, I was like, man, I got to go quickly through this. I don't want to go quickly through this. I want to make sure that we understand this because I think it's by God's grace from his word going to be helpful for us. So let's consider these four questions that we should be asking so that, that, that sin does not reign within us so that we can learn to discern the Spirit's voice. The first question, is it biblical? Is it biblical? Sometimes our urges are in direct opposition to the teachings of Scripture, right? Sometimes I have an impulse that is a direct violation of something that God has spoken plainly in his word. And church, it's real simple. If it's not biblical, we should abstain from it. We should flee, in fact, is what the scriptures teach us. Abstain from that passion or desire altogether. Here's what I know I do in my heart. I just sort of like find a way to contextualize or nuance or make, find a way that I can still do that, even if I know that I shouldn't. And one of the ways we do that is don't tell anyone about it. Make those decisions inside of our own hearts, our own minds. See, for instance, a desire that I know shows up in me a lot is our desire to place ourselves at the center or is more important than others. That impulse happens a lot in my heart. Just to, to put my way first, my perspective first, or that my way is right, or that my perspective is right or normal, and that everybody else needs to sort of concede that and everything will go well, right? Whether it's a road trip or church community, that impulse is alive and well in me. Church, that impulse defies the word of the living God. Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Selfish ambition or selfish impulses should always be refused. Our feelings and logic never outweigh God's word. The Apostle Peter wrote, 1 Peter 2, verse 11, therefore I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. In other words, 
satisfying unbiblical passions is ultimately spiritual suicide. It will kill you. And this is what I think in my fallenness, I don't believe. I don't believe that giving in to sin is going to kill me. I just think it'll be fun for a minute, and maybe God will forgive me, and maybe people will understand. In other words, I go back to Romans 6, verse 1, and say, I should just go on sinning so that grace may increase. Are you seeing how Paul's making this connection? That in our impulses, we just go, ah, he'll forgive us. Ah, he understands it's a hard week. Ah, he understands it's been 18, 19, 20 months, whatever it's been, of just absolute madness. See, we need to understand that in the middle of our weakness, Jesus doesn't say, do as you please. In our weakness, he says, I'll make you strong. In our weakness, he doesn't just say, it's cool to sin because I know you've had a hard day. In our weakness, he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. What's he going to give us, church? Rest. Some of us need to take heed to not prepare a reason why we should have been allowed by God to do what we wanted to do, but some of us need to heed his word to just go to him. He's always saying, come to me. I know it's been hard. Come to me. Come to me. So the first question we ask is, is it biblical? If it's not, don't do it. If it is kind of like, you know, a flow chart, go to the next question. Is it wise? Is it wise? See, sometimes an inclination is not directly unbiblical. And by the way, I've had this question a thousand times from our community if I've had it once. So there's not a direct prohibition in the scriptures. So I'm cool, right? Not exactly. The scriptures teach wisdom. The scriptures give you the, tell us that the Holy Spirit resides in your life. Therefore, we should ask, is it wise? There may not be a clear prohibition, but is it helpful? Think about some of the ways that we spend money. Money reveals a lot within our hearts and our minds about our desires and about our longings. In particular, our lack of wisdom and self-control. There may not be a verse in the Bible about sports betting. There may not be one about always picking up your friend's tab, even though you know you have already maxed out this credit card, or constantly buying new clothes, or constantly eating out. So, so is it wise? There may not be those direct prohibitions in the scriptures, but is it wise? Is it helpful? Does it build up others? Does it steward well what God has entrusted to me? See, while the specific passions or passionate ways that we want to spend our money may not be, have a direct verse that they correlate with, in the Bible, Paul does teach this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So, if a passion is not wise or helpful, don't do it. But if there is no prohibition against it, and it's not foolish, enjoy it and give glory to God. Enjoy it. So we're not supposed to be bound up in these questions. They're actually supposed to free us to enjoy the things that God has given us to enjoy. So is it biblical? Is it wise? Thirdly, is it time? Is it the right time? This one's hard. There, there are many good passions and inclinations within us, blessings that God has woven together in the human body and the human psyche, but are meant to be satisfied and enjoyed within a particular time and context. See, in the kingdom of God, it is not uncommon to experience more fruit and joy and maturity while waiting for something than once we finally actually reach that thing that we have been waiting for. Have you ever experienced this? That sometimes I look back on waiting for something and go, maybe the point was waiting. 
Maybe the point was not even to get this thing when I wanted this thing, but that the Lord was doing something in my waiting. This is why David could say in Psalm 27, wait upon the Lord. There is something he does in our waiting, in the human soul, that in many respects I think we are often avoidant of. Sometimes that's the point. So what are some examples of this? Well, I think like sex and marriage, these are, this is an easy example that the scriptures talk about that maybe comes to mind when we think about, is it the right time? Uh, Solomon, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 1 and 4, give us clarity about this. But this is also true in discipling our children, if I can just say that. That I have a desire as a parent for my kids to act maturely, to obey my words, and to contribute meaningfully to society right away. I want them right away to contribute something to the family, to our neighborhood, and to the world around them. But is it really the right time? Are there things as a parent that I am expecting my four children to do right away that the scriptures actually teach me to train them up in? That they don't just download like the latest software of obeying their parents and can do it in a moment's notice, that maybe I have to go long-suffering style with them. In fact, I think that's what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 6, when he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. See, a lot of times I know as a parent, my anger shows up because I'm trying to make my kids do something before it's time or they are able to do it. And it provokes anger in them and frustration in them. And so the question for me as a father, and for many of us in other walks of life, is it time? Not is that the wrong impulse, but is it time for that impulse to be satisfied? Lastly, is it necessary? And in the 21st century, this may be the hardest one for us to answer, and I hope to bring some clarity around this. See, some of our passions and desires are not meant to be fulfilled in this life. That's really hard. Every human person will die with unfulfilled and unmet desires. Let that settle in. <laughs> this fallen world cannot meet the eternal desires of your soul. In fact, anyone who finds complete fulfillment in this life is mastered by sin. Sin has deceived them and gaslighted them that their, that their desires are only temporal are only immediate. They are not eternal. Fortunately, our lives are not measured by the passions we've satisfied and the dreams that we've realized. Despite everything that the internet is teaching us today, everything that social media is discipling into our psyche, your desires, your passions are not the meaning of life. To put it another way, we are not entitled to have our passions fulfilled or satisfied in this life. Even take the evangelical idol, the Christian idol of marriage. We are supposed to be, husbands and wives are supposed to be left wanting by our spouses. Think about that. You're supposed to be left wanting. In fact, if you ever try to find complete and utter satisfaction from your wife or husband, you will hurt them and you will hurt yourself because they can't do it. Earthly husbands and wives are actually supposed to point each other to Christ, the only one who truly satisfies. This is what Ephesians chapter 5 is all about. And so when we detect a desire welling up in us, we need to acknowledge that it may never be fulfilled and does not have to be fulfilled because we are more than our fulfilled desires. 
We're a part of this new humanity, this new people. So we must be careful not to presume that our inclinations are biblical and that they are always wise and that they need to be fulfilled immediately and that they necessarily need to be fulfilled at all. What Paul is saying is that our desires have not only been stained by sin, but also that sin even uses those passions and our desires to control us and to accomplish its purposes. That's what verse 13a helps us to see, the first part. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So that's the first command. Do not, church, give yourself to sin. And the good news is that in Christ, you don't have to. In Christ, you have this power, part of this new humanity, to fully understand who you are, who he has said you are, that you are dead to sin, that you are alive to God in Christ. And we'll consider this more next week, but it's all undergirded by that promise. Let's look at verse 14 before we consider the rest next week. It says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are no longer, or rather not under the law, but under grace. What's that mean? That means that in Christ, you actually have the power to refuse sin. You have the power to ask the question, is it biblical, is it wise, is it time, and is it necessary? And because God's Spirit lives in you through the death and resurrection of Jesus by grace through faith, you can actually hear the Holy Spirit respond, yes, it is biblical, enjoy. No, it is not biblical, refuse. It's not the right time, but your, your heart and mind are in the right place. It's not necessary. In fact, come to me when you're not satisfied by this world because I'll bring you satisfaction. That that satisfaction is not supposed to be found and met in this life. And so when you're in Christ, you always have someone who satisfies, always has someone who says that he will fulfill the promises that he has spoken to you because Jesus is the yes and amen, Corinthians teaches us, of all of the promises of God. We'll pick back up where we left off next week. Let's pray. Father, these desires that show up in our heart and mind, it's hard to understand what to do with them all. We need to grow up in this. We need to pursue maturity in this. So I pray for my sisters and brothers. Pray for myself. Help us when we are met with a desire, an inclination within our heart, our mind, our soul, our bodies, that we would even take those desires to you, that we would test the spirits, that we would test these feelings, these inclinations, and ask, is it biblical? Is it wise? Is it time? And is it necessary? And trust you with the answer. Trust your word with the answer, and not ourselves. And we need each other in this, God, so help us to be a people who experience this kind of moral formation in community, not in isolation, but even bringing our emotions, our feelings, our inclinations to our groups, to our sisters and brothers, and just saying, help me. I'm not sure if this impulse is from me or if it's from the Lord. Is it biblical? Is it wise? Is it time? Is it necessary? God, we desire to do this because sin has no hold on us anymore. And so we can break loose of those chains that Jesus Christ broke on our behalf. So we can live this new life, a part of this new humanity. So we can say yes to righteousness and no to the brokenness and shame and guilt of the old self. So empower us to that end. Encourage us in this. This is deeply hopeful for us, Father, that no temptation has seized us that is not common to man, that you have empowered us by your Spirit to walk in righteousness with you. So we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.